But it also gives you strength and also perspective to keep going on, you know, to appreciate other stuff that you you weren't doing before. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been a leading innovator and manufacturer of printmaking products for over 50 years. Speedball's speed screens answer the call to have an easy-to-use way to screen print no matter what your experience level. Whether printing at home, studio, or classroom, these ready-to-use mess screens allow you to create permanent photographic stencils without the need to mix emulsions or coat a screen. All you need is your design and you're ready to print. Pick up the Speed Screens kit for the most affordable way to get all the materials needed to print your next masterpiece. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Chema Scandal, a graphic artist and printmaker living in Chicago. We talk about his early influences in the vibrant art scene of Mexico City, how he came to use his iconic luchador mask in all public representations, collaborating with musical bands, his zine fest, and so much more. So, without further ado, Sit back, relax, and prepare to peek behind the mask with Chema Scandal. Hi, Chema. How's it going? Hello, Miranda. I'm good. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm moving. It's a perfect start. Perfect start. <laughs> yeah. My morning has been like that. Yeah. I'm, well, I really appreciate you taking some time in the middle of a big life change, moving apartments, doing all of that to sit down and, and have a chat with me. I look forward to to learning more about you and your work and having a chat on the English version of the Hello Print Friend podcast. Yeah. Correct. Thank you for having me again. Yeah. We're always, always happy to have you. So before we get into the questions, could you let our good listeners know who you are, where you are, what you do? Well, hello everyone. I'm Chema. I go by Chema Scandal. I'm a graphic artist. I'm originally from Mexico City, but I moved to Chicago 11 plus years now. Mm -hmm. uh, as I said, I am a visual artist, but also a printmaker. A strong work of, of my practices based on print. So, yeah, yeah. why yeah. I'm here, right? <laughs> exactly. That's why you're a print friend. Yeah. And so you said that you're from Mexico City. Is that where you grew up? Uh, no, I actually I grew up in a smaller town called Puebla. And that is two, two hours south of Mexico City, which is the capital in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And my dad is from that, that state. So actually, in my birth certificate, 
I'm registered as a poblano, so born in Puebla, but I was born in Mexico City. That's a part of our Spaniard influence. I think there's a Puebla in Spain. So this was a town founded by, well, after the colony, founded by, by Spaniards and also French. So it has that strong influence. And yeah, it's called Puebla. <laughs> and then what was art? like for you in that part of your life growing up? What kind of influence did it have on you? Were you a, a young artist? Well, there was none like a formal art education within my family, but you know, art is everywhere. And I'm saying that because my family, they come from the scientific part of, of education or culture. And my, my dad, he's an agronomist engineer or agronomy. And my mom, she's a biologist, a botanist, and also a teacher. So I'm actually the only one in my family that pursued an art career. So I'm the black sheep, or yeah, the different sheep, let's say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So when you were growing up, did you go to museums? Did you draw? Were you seeing public art around you? Yes, yes. A lot of my, well, the art education came from my elementary school. We had an art class, of course. And I was thinking about this, all the questions you, you asked during the, the podcast interviews I've been listening to. Uh-huh. And, and I was remembering I, I drew a like a spatial landscape, if you want. This was the astronaut coming out of a spaceship. And this was using crayons on sandpaper. So it was a black sandpaper. And I remember the teacher came, very serious, came to my small table where, where I was working in the corner as a good artist. Yeah, yeah, as a good black sheep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was in the corner by myself, not talking to my friend or my classmates, and and she was like, "Okay, let's go with the principal." And then I was kind of scared, like, "Hey, what what did I do?" And she was like, "Oh, this is amazing. I'm gonna keep it." So I was thinking about that. That that was my probably my masterpiece in kindergarten, <laughs> and they kept it. <laughs> It was stolen from you, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so I was exposed to books and comics in that school, which is an American school. But also I was thinking about summer summer vacation. We used to go to Mexico City where my grandparents, my mom's side, lived at the time. And my, my aunt Susie, Susana, she... She sent me to this summer camp, which was about gouache. And I was probably seven or eight years old, but I was exposed to this new technique, which was like, I, I've used acrylics or something like that, but this had another name. And of course they gave us history, the, the history of gouache. So yeah, th- those were my, probably my first two big exposures to art. And, and of course the books my, my dad had. The illustrations in it, you know. Oh yeah, for biology or no, but biology was your mother. Yeah, my mom, my my dad had a lot of agronomy stuff and the illustrations, mainly scientific illustrations. But he also he had a master's degree in uh, in economy, 
So okay. I remember they had this book published by the by the Mexico Cultural Affairs Office about economy, but the all the illustrations were about well were made by Posada. Oh, uh, cool. as you know, well, economic economics and engravings were there. So I really loved those, and I used to to go through their books just to check out the illustrations and. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea. I mean, I know that he did sort of political work and broadsides, but like, yeah, I could see how that could fit into a book about economics from his image. Yeah, those were published in the in the late 70s or 80s. So they were just taking the the context of those illustrations. But Yeah. Oh, that's that's very uh-huh. cool. And so and you know, you got you got this encouragement directly from your your teacher saying that she's she's taking this work from you. <laughs> All right. And then from there did you think, okay, well, maybe I'll 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 keep working and I'll I'll keep drawing and 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 then did you did you want to go to art school? What was kind of that that trajectory like? Not really because at the time probably probably is the same now but in in Mexico at least uh, where I grew up, the arts is a not very well-seen career if you want. Mainly Coming from a family where my parents were the first generation attending universities, and and you know it's not the well they tell you you're gonna starve if you want to pursue this career like this. So I actually I I studied biology for for a year and at high school over there well that would be the the same academic degree I studied for the science branch of. Of, yeah, of college. So I, I actually, I cursed one, one year of biology before changing everything to the arts. And also I was going to be a musician because when I was around 18, I was undecided of pursuing the arts or biology. And of course, in the middle was music. So no relation between each, each one of those, but... But I tried. <laughs> yeah. What what kind of music or what instrument did you play? I played trumpet. Oh, so cool. I was going to to be a instrumentist, I would say. But going into music music school is well, all the all the what you have to to study for like history, of course, reading music, writing it, and but yeah, I I think I was too old for that. Because it's like, for me, it's like being a musician and mainly to go into the classical music or it, it is like being an athlete. You have to start very young. And at the time, I, I didn't feel comfortable. And also, well, there was a lot of going on in my mind. Yeah. Politics were involved into this turmoil of... <laughs> of uh, yeah, there was a strike in my in my university, and I was part of it, so I was a little bit reluctant against society at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's that kind of passion and ire against what really are fucked up systems. You feel it so strongly in that like 18, 19, 20 
time period, at least I did, like in my life where you're just like, you're like, I don't know why everyone's just like running around screaming, trying to burn everything to the ground. Like that kind of like real passion of that, like late teens, early twenties. And then you get older and you have to kind of realize like, okay, like I can't just firebomb everything and start over. I have to like find ways to work within a system you have to calm down a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And also, I was thinking that also opened some opportunities for me to explore another side of the arts, that that would be like posters and mainly zines, making zines, in that case, related to politics. But also, I mean, at the time, I would discover that's part of the self-publishing practice, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, and yeah, and that, that connection between politics and printmaking, I mean, is we've already brought up Posada, right? Like it goes back yeah, correct. so far. And it's, it's, it's the original way that people found a way to get ideas out quickly, get ideas out with an impact and, and spread the word about, about what's going on. So yeah, that makes sense that, that posters and zines, kind of crossed over, particularly with like like music, politics, and printmaking, I feel like all go very, very well together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And at the time, it, it felt like a, like the natural way to, to follow. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and speaking again, or speaking, I guess, as we are about these sort of early influences and you know, your time as, as, as a young artist, the Lucha Libre that comes up, you know, in your work, you often are seen wearing the mask, or it'll even appear in some of your artwork. Were you a wrestling fan growing up, or was that an aesthetic that kind of captured you later in life? Well, at the time, I mean, I used to to watch some some matches or lucha libre uh, tournaments in Mexico. It was it, it is still a very popular sport, but it's also like this spectacle, the show, the lights, and all the drama part of it the theatrical part yeah it's like a performance exactly. art. yeah so in my in my school at the time it was not very well seen because it was like lower class and this cheesy quote unquote sport but i me and my couple friends we were like yeah let's watch it why not because it's fun and and also funny <laughs> But but it, it also came. I mean that that influence came as a reinforcement of popular culture. And at the time, I think I was reading a lot about well the Mexican sociological books and like Octavio Paz and how the their own society seems itself in in Mexico. So he talks in, in, in one of the main books of his main books about the masks we we have as Mexicans because we are like this mixture of indigenous and Spaniards. But also, I, I mean, I was thinking about now that I'm a migrant and of course a human, I, I see those masks we, we put on everywhere, right? And, and it stuck to me, I mean, just using the mask. To be honest, I started doing that when I came to Chicago. Oh, and that really? was like, I mean, it wasn't on purpose. I was hanging out with this graffiti and tagger friends here. So they were doing this uh, illegal graffiti. 
Yeah. Uh, and I remember they were interviewed and they were covering their faces. So I did the same, but just with a bandana. But then it evolved to the Lucha Libre side of it. And I started using it. Well, no, I, I, I used it once for a photo shoot in, in college. I mean, yeah, at the university. Uh, I was part of a illustration catalog in Italy. So they asked us to, to send a photo, a portrait of us. And all the, all the illustrators, they were like very serious and with their, their brushes and <laughs> and and I was like, nah, I wanted it to be fun and not that rigid. So I put a lucha libre on. That was modified, but later on I I designed mine and I met this guy that he used to be a luchador in the 70s and now he's a mask oh, maker, cool. like a professional one. In Chicago? No, in Mexico City. In Mexico City, uh-huh. So yeah. I asked him if, if he could make one for me and he's a... He's a mask maker. That's his profession now. And, uh, and yeah. And from then on, I, I started using the mask. And I got a little bit tired of using the same one. So I made two more. And now I use different kind of masks because there are, I love masks and the, the meaning of them and the materials. I, I really enjoy them. So that's why I don't show my face on the internet. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like, particularly if you almost sort of kind of fell into using the mask as a, as a tradition, sort of from graffiti art and street art and that sort of thing and, and disguising who you are. But I feel like now we're all sort of learning how it's probably a really good idea, actually. Like as we're learning more and more about AI and facial recognition and data collection, like I think it actually might have been the right way to go even early on. I, I yeah. thought about that too uh, years ago, but already living here in the U.S. The, not the, the footprint you live on the, on the internet, but also it was kind of like something that evolved with my character. I have a friend that, that she told me like, hey, I like the way you have a character as an artist. I wasn't aware at the time, like, <laughs> like, okay, I'm Chema, but as a graphic artist, I'm Chem Scandal, and and the name also came from from the music, and so it, it's like a a little bit of a lot of stuff that mixed up. So when I was doing some research into you and preparing for our talk, I found this article I think on a on like a Chicago blog about how you were in a, a relatively serious car accident. And and it's like about this local artist is injured and the, the community stepped up to help him. And there you are like in the hospital bed with your mask on. Yeah. Well, that wasn't a real photo. It's Photoshop. I was at the hospital. Okay. Uh, it okay. was a very bad accident. I'm very fortunate to survive. Uh, but no, the photo is, uh, the mask is Photoshop. Oh, is yeah. it? Okay. I didn't, it, I, you fooled and me. Those were <laughs> my, my graphic design skills, probably because I actually got some feedback and through a friend, an artist friend, they, they told her, is this a performance? Or right. So they weren't serious. They weren't sure if this was serious or real or if I was just doing something. 
like <laughs> part of the artist's practice. But uh, no, it was it was a real, a very real accident. It was mm. it was a very bad one. But I'm lucky to to be still around. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I definitely don't don't want to make light at all of that of that experience. So yeah, gl- very glad that you're safe. Yeah. But you know, it's part of life, and also it's a life changing moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this happened the next year after the pandemic. So that was 2021. And oh wow! I was thinking about that the other day. I fa- I have faced death like in front of me three times, and uh, mm. one was the uh, the COVID pandemic mm. that I got in in November 2020. Oh uh, we had no vaccines at the time. Yeah, so it felt pretty scary to get that email telling you you are positive. After all mm-hmm. that year of seeing all this crazy stuff happening all around, mm-hmm. and then the next year the accident. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, back to back. Yeah, but it also gives you strength and also perspective to keep going on. You know, and also mm-hmm. um, to appreciate other stuff that you you weren't doing before. Yeah, it's so funny how as humans we seem to like need to have these big dramatic things happen to us to make us appreciate like how lucky we are. And I don't I don't know why we're wired to continually forget. You know what I mean? Actually just this morning I got a call from Tim on the way to work. And it's like 17 degrees here. It's like very cold. And he was on the highway into work and he hit a patch of ice and he spun out, but he was fine because there just were no cars coming. But all of a sudden he's just like, oh my God, like I could have died in that moment if a car had been coming the other direction. Oh. And he was just really lucky because he just was driving along 50 miles an hour, hits ice and loses control of the car. And... And then all of a sudden, it's just, we were talking about that feeling of those moments where you're like, oh God, like the, the sky, the blue of the sky is so incredible and the birds are singing. And like, we, we get reminded of just the, the fucking miracle of being anything at all and able to perceive the beauty and the wonder of the world around us. And then we forget it again, though. It's like, we're so good at then falling back into our bullshit. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's life is so fragile. And also, mm-hmm. it's like a very thin uh, string. But we, I mean, we appreciate those moments, as you said. But yeah, we are humans and human nature is always there. Yeah, I was amazed for- uh, after the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic is not over yet, but not as bad as it, it mm-hmm. at the time. And of course, it was a life-changing moment for many of us. Mm-hmm. I lost very... Uh, well, uh, many beloved uh, friends in Mexico. Mm. So it's something very harsh at the time. And uh, and then when things got a little bit better, the first thing we got, a war in Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're not done with this. And I mean, the war was before, seven years on the making, but the invasion yeah. was harsher and even worse 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but that also yeah. gives you at least a little bit of uh, uh, influence to keep doing what you're doing and, yeah, trying to do as much better as you can. Yeah, definitely. And and I think that'd be, yeah, a good time to talk about maybe a bit of the the subject matter that, that you work on. I know you do work a lot with musicians and you do posters and you also have um, – you know, more political work. You've got some just wonderful images of <laughs> Donald Trump just looking like the absolute devil that he is. Were you Was your work when you started to make posters? I mean, it sounds like you, you spoke a little bit to kind of political engagement and activism in Mexico City. Has it always had that, that political statement element to it? I think so. Yeah. The, another very important moment in my life was the uh, Zapatista of Price in 1994. Of course, that came back with the idea of, of the original Zapatistas, which were doing their stuff in the what we call Mexican Revolution, 1910. So mm-hmm. that is a century prior. And it's curious because... Posada, again, and Banegas, and Manilla, and all those guys that were making illustrations and printmaking, not only political, but they were illustrating the news at the time. Mm-hmm. They were talking about Zapatistas. So, I mean, the original Emiliano Zapata stuff, revolution in 1910. So for me, it was like, hey, we're still dealing with this stuff, which, of course, comes... Uh, in a very and a much complex matter, because that's mm-hmm. how Mexican society is still to to up to this day. But yeah, I mean the 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 political posters influence the work I've seen through my mom's side mainly because she was not an activist, but she was involved in the 1968 student movement, oh, cool. which was a uh, very big in, in Mexico City and also suppressed. But as I later on learned, it was all around, like in, like in France and here in the United States too. So, yeah, I would say it, it comes like a natural way of also being influenced by all these artists and, and topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's funny that you... You were talking about the last president graphic I did. I don't want to mention the name because yeah. at this point, as you said, it's it's toxic. Yeah. yeah. But so are times like this and part of our societies, like people believing stuff that I thought we, we had surpassed. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, like believing stuff that is, I, I cannot I cannot understand how people believe mm-hmm. this part of politics. Yeah, I know what you mean. And and yeah, I I am not always a pride Mexican, like mm-hmm. a pride migrant Mexican, if you want. But mm-hmm. when he started talking about people coming into this country like that and describing with those mm-hmm. terms and those those mm-hmm. words, I was like, this guy is. I mean. It reminded me of, of an article I was reading at the time of how the, the the Nazi party in Germany came to power. 
So, yeah, it was a little scary. And it made me feel a little bit proud of of my heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's anytime someone is using language that's that dehumanizing about any group of people, it is terrifying because dehumanizing someone else is the first step to being able to commit atrocities against them is that you have to first take away humanity in order to treat someone that poorly and that terribly, you know? And so I think that's part of what's so stressful when we hear that kind of rhetoric about groups of people without societal power. That's like the vulnerability is of course built in. And it's, it's just terrifying because it it feels like, like that's like the first crack in wearing away like the protection of people treating each other with like that basic level of you're a human, so I can't do X, Y, and Z to you. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I I would like to add that it's not a well in this case he was trying to play that racial card. Or mm-hmm. in this case, well, I assume not of not all of them are bad. <laughs> like mm-hmm. because I mean, we have a, many kind of different Mexicans here, but that's uh, the human nature of those. I would say, I don't know how to describe them, but mainly politicians play with the, with those sentiments and uh, mm-hmm. rhetoric. I mean, the same, it's not, it's not also a, always a racial stuff, racial mm-hmm. division or we can, we can look at history and uh, of course you were we were talking about Europe and all the conflicts they had over there, but also, for example, the the divisions they have in the Middle East or even in Africa, the Hutus, the Tutsis. I mean, they're all the yeah. same, but they are just divided by, I don't know, religions or sometimes tribal stuff that are very... I don't know. I, I don't get how that happens, but I understand that's how power keeps keeps afloat, right? And I think that yeah. that's a, the important part of education and also sharing stuff. In this case, probably sharing edu- education and also history through mm-hmm. through the through the arts. So yeah, mm-hmm. and and I I'm thinking of that power that art has to connect people across space and time who maybe don't know each other and the power that art has to let people into someone else's experience, you know? And so you can't, you can't feel like someone is an other if you feel like you understand where they're coming from. If you listen to their story that, that creates a, a sense of investment and connection with another person and art is so uniquely suited to do that. And whether that's through poetry or music or posters or fine art, oil painting, whatever it is, it's a way that humans can break down that sense of I am me and you are you, and we don't have anything in common. The second I hear someone's true story, something told from the heart, 
you can't feel like you don't know them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, all the things in between, because, I mean, the arts and the, the artists are always influenced by the society they are living in, but also mm-hmm. the the stuff they are taking from from other insp- inspirations or like other influences in this case. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's not always like political 100% all the time, but because I also think, I mean, and mainly lately, I want to think in a positive way. Yeah. And, uh, but also not to forget the, the fun part of, of how you do stuff because the message is there, but there's always much more how you can communicate that one. Uh, that resonates to me lately, and that's path I want to explore into my practice. Absolutely. And I, I think that that's such an important thing to point out is that because we, you know, we're living in this time as we were speaking to where you've got the election of the president before this one, <laughs> we've got the pandemic, we've got an active war in Europe, you, you know, all of these things that just seem to pile on and pile on and pile on and, and it to fall into despair would be easy. And so we do need to understand how we support each other, how we find joy, how we find connection. But that can't go so far that you completely block out other people's experiences, you know? So it's like, or, 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 or sort of be the ostrich with your head in the sand, the toxic positivity, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. You know, people being like, oh, don't, don't let that negativity into your space. Don't even think about Ukraine, you know, like, like we need to be aware, but we also need to hold each other up and be kind and like give each other the strength to feel positive enough to keep trying to get the word out, to, to make change, to not get like empathy fatigue. Exactly. Where you're like, oh, another another tragedy. I can't even hear about that. Like, we do you need to have a certain internal resilience and even to like let that stuff into your body? I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, as you said, understand others' backgrounds and histories and what they have to say too, because uh, mm-hmm. we as humans we have an internal struggle. It might not be the same for for me as for you, but that that comes to me as a. A uh, reminder always of what the LGBTQ experience is now. And, mm-hmm. and some folks that were saying that's not very important. Mm-hmm. And probably at the, at the beginning, some of us, we were like, well, that's a very personal and internal struggle. But at the end, that is how society is composed by, by different subjects. And you have to understand them. So mm-hmm. that for me, that happened. And, and, now I'm very like supportive of of all of their struggles, even though I I'm not one of them, but I mm-hmm. I totally understand them. Speaking of language, as we were earlier, I mean, it's we're we're recording this in in mid March, and just a few days ago, we had someone call for literally transgenderism must be eradicated. If from public life and just the use of that word. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Like that, that word just brings to mind so many recent and not so recent human atrocities. Like when you're talking about a, a, a group of people in that way. And so yeah. 
it's that kind of thing is you say it's it's so scary to people who don't even identify as as transgender you can't i can't imagine what it would be like if you're the group of people that's being said about and so it's that level of empathy and understanding is so important to know to to be able to go there emotionally and still have the wherewithal to stand your ground and fight the good fight. And I think a lot of that is through human connection, through not feeling alone, being able to turn to someone else and say, that was awful, right? Look to another person and say, this is truly terrible. And someone can say, yes, you're not crazy. Yeah, yeah. But that also comes with, uh, you have to open your mind a little bit, but also Mm -hmm. you have to be exposed to... uh, different elements of culture, I would say. Mm. Um, in, the, in an ideal world, it would be very useful for people to travel around mm. and understand and see and get exposed to other societies. Yeah. And I mean, you've done this because you are all around the planet and that's very <laughs> cool. But imagine someone in the middle of the mountains of any country because the same the same thing happened in Mexico, and I, that's the mm-hmm. the society I know the best. People are very into their small lives, and yeah, they they need to to know there is much more out there. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think there's. I'm sure there's some quote that I'm not going to get right by some very smart, famous person. Mm-hmm. That that, but the gist of it is that the the best cure for prejudice is travel you know is is that's i don't remember who i'm sure someone very smart said it before me but i i really believe it is that we we just are so naturally adapted to hating and fearing what we don't know and then the second you know it's it becomes almost impossible i think and i'd I'd love to get a chance to to talk about some of the collectives that you've been a part of and that and like like the Instituto Grafico de Chicago, mm-hmm. like I the, every time I see you all or the work at a at a fair, it always looks like you're having a really good time. <laughs> like, is that true? Is it as, as much fun as it looks like? <laughs> I want to say yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I bet it but, is. But, well, we met uh, like a year ago at SGCI in Madison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In person. Uh, so I think, well, my my two friends that were part of the collective that, that morning, I think they were a little bit hungover. <laughs> but they, were, they, they were very serious, if I can recall. But, uh, but yeah, it's always fun to be showing our stuff, our work mm-hmm. as a collective, because we brought, we were three of us over there. Mm-hmm. But we brought the work of all the eight members at the time. So yeah. it is fun, of course, and it's always nice to meet new people, getting exposed to different artists and their point of, of, of view. But also, you have to remember all the work that is behind that. Right. So, yeah. I'm seeing like the party, like the exhibition at the end, right? Yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's always nice to to be able to show stuff, new stuff. But, uh, but yeah, let's let's not forget all the the part be- before. Yeah. Yes, 
Yeah. And also, uh, yeah, I be, I'm not a founder member of, uh, of Instituto Grafico because I moved here in 2011 and I think they were already going on, but I, mm-hmm. I came in as a member later. But uh, yeah, the, the group has changed a little. And we actually have new young members, which is an important part for a collective, you know. Did you all do something recently at the Chicago Printmakers Collaborative? We we are having a show, as we are recording this, we have an opening show opening tomorrow. Oh, cool, cool. Okay. Yeah, because I think I was in Chicago just really briefly a couple weeks ago and, of course, went to see Deb and Jack and all the wonderful people there. Oh. And they said that you were going to be coming by, I think, like the afternoon that we were leaving or something. So, like, we just missed each other and Tim and I were only there for, like, 36 hours or something on our way home. But, oh, okay. yeah. Okay, cool. That'll be great then. Yeah, yeah we just mounted that. That's a... A show we came well. We were invited by by Deb and and all the team over there. They wanted us to to show what really inspires us. So mm-hmm. it's like a tribute to to the people's graphic uh, workshop. So mm-hmm. that's how we called it. Why we called it uh, Graduado Popular, Prince mm-hmm. for the People, which is uh, popular graphics uh, grabados para la gente. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what about zines? You mentioned those briefly. Are you do you still make like the little booklets and that sort of thing? And I know you're the the founder of the the zine mercado. Uh-huh. Yeah, is that is that still active and part of your practice? Yeah. Yeah, and and it's becoming stronger year after year. The zine community is thriving, I would say. Also the during the pandemic, they I mean a lot of people started making zines again mm. uh, and and I, I have this illustration background too so I've always been attached to that part of uh, not just the comics and cartoons but also like all the character designers and all that so that's the main part I I am attached to in the into the scene making. But in mm, 2016, mm-hmm. I I thought the, the this neighborhood where I live at was changing a lot, and I tried to young artists from Latino backgrounds, Anglo-Saxon, if you want, and and this community had a a, a very big Polish population, mm-hmm. so we we invited them to form a Zin Mercado. We took over a a public park because that's also part of a of the ethos, the public space, mm-hmm. the use of it, and and yeah, during the summer, once a year we organize that one. So it's it's been a a nice ride, but a little difficult one. But we we mm-hmm. organize it during the pandemic too. That way, you know, like. In a public park, did that make sense because of the the pandemic? Yeah, but we were doing it since before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but correct. So it's a good thing you already knew how to have a zine fest outside. Yeah, and it's challenging because paper and wind and the elements are not always the best friends. Well, and also, yeah, like Chicago weather. It's not exactly. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. It's not like you're in Southern California where you can pretty much more or less have something consistent. So yeah. Or indoors, indoor space where usually print fairs or zine fests take place. (laughs) That's so cool. I love to hear that like the zine world is still thriving because it's one that I remember learning about as a teenager. You'd go to your local comic book store and there'd be like your your manga and your Spider-Man comics and then your independent comics. And then underneath there'd be this little rack of these little handmade locally made things that were so intriguing, particularly because they, at least when I was in high school, they were usually dirty. And so I was like a 16 year, you'd be like, I get to look at this. This is like pre-internet days, kids. It was, you had to, you had to get it where you could. But, but that's um, also the magic of scenes. Yeah. For me, it's like the real independent, publications and you can do whatever you want with them totally so so that's a a big bonus for them and probably the the main part of what i got very into them because at the time i was i was collecting not only political zines but also music influence zines Mm -hmm. and specific ska zines with which are like a long tradition of a, a music genre you know yeah, yeah. And I got a couple of them from Europe, from Spain in specific, because the the same language, Spanish. Mm-hmm. And I I really loved those. They were like offset printed, some of them photocopied. And later, years later, I I, I got to know the the editors, and now they are good friends of of mine. Oh, cool. So yeah. That, that's another part of because my my practice is divided between the arts and the music influence mainly, mm-hmm. and of course the yeah. social issues and history. <laughs> totally, yeah. Because how do you collaborate with bands or artists when you are doing a poster for them? Do they give you an idea? Do they just kind of give you free reign? Well, it depends on the band. Mm-hmm. I I think I I have just made one poster. I'm I was not interested in the band I did it for. Oh yeah, no. which was really weird, and it happened because my friend asked me to do it mm-hmm. for for the band he was managing at the time, and they were touring and coming through Chicago. But most of the time, it's like word of mouth, and just they. I mean, so many of the musicians or artists are. Good friends, so I have interviewed them um, because I used to have a, a zine about music. Oh, cool! And and also, well, they just contact me sometimes, mainly for record mm-hmm. covers and and posters. But on the other side, I started like a print a poster experiment with a music festival here that started in 2015, and that was the the largest Latino rock music at the time. So mm. my friend was the curator of the main event. It was like a spin-off of Riot Fest. It's called Ruido Fest. And and my friend invited me to be part of. So I was also helping them design the screams on the stages. But I proposed them to do this poster fest. And they I had not a lot of time in my hands to do all the posters I wanted for the bands. 
So I invited like a gig poster or graphic designers, illustrators I really like. So I was matching a band with a graphic artist. Oh, and cool. Yeah. That was, that's how we started that, that small project that was called Cellulosa. Now it's called El Print Mercado. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes as other artists, you, you really like a band and, and you reach out to them if they like your stuff, they, they, they ask for a proposal. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it flourishes and sometimes it doesn't. That sounds really exciting, though, to have those the practice that you do. It just sounds so collaborative where you're bringing people together around other artists, musicians, having this this intersectional practice where you're talking to all kinds of different people doing different things. And so was that something that's difficult to do after you've let move cities, but let alone like moved countries? Cause I, I know from living in different places, you can only do that sort of thing. Usually after you've built community, it's difficult to show up someplace and be like, okay, who do I need to know to get this done? Was that building that network, did that come over time? Or did being an artist and someone's engaged in art making, did you show up and were able to form that pretty quickly? Well, I I would have to say that the internet helps a lot with that. For sure, yeah. And now social media, mm-hmm. but like in a more personal way but but i think we've doing that for at least 20 years mm-hmm. i mean the same uh, way of collaborating with as i said friends uh, making zines before then evolving into the artistic world i was talking to poster artists from all around and up to these days i that's how we we help each other and also we we actually we get projects started so mm-hmm. in this in these days for example you can have someone printing your your posters and bringing them to flatstock in south by southwest mm-hmm. in austin and also i mean doing the, the same stuff in your city collaborating with people in my case that i know since i was living in in mexico mm-hmm. and and also i think the the artistic community has grown so much that there's always a way to to help each other or collaborate. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's a that's a win-win for everyone and Absolutely. I love it. So I had I had one more question for you, which is very basic. But why is the C and the H capitalized in your name? Because every time I, I write it out or I see it I always second guess myself. I'm like, oh no, wait, no, I think that is right. But that is right, right? That's how you like it written. Yeah, yeah. I like I wrote it, I write it like that. And and I always mm-hmm. ask my credit to be capitalized. Mainly yeah. because of the sound, phonetically. Uh-huh. Because I mean when I started coming just visiting to the US, which was through music in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember this musician I really like, a band that is called Jumbo Joy. And and I was playing records at the time at the mm-hmm. venue, and he he was asking for Kema or Kema, uh-huh. um, yeah. And I was like, my friend told him like, hey, it's not Kema, it's Shema. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, it's a, something different how we pronounce and how in a country like this, 
words are pronounced that I I just wanted to make it clearer. It certainly mm -hmm. can. So like Chema or sometimes call, people call me Chema or Emma, yeah, yeah. Hey Mart. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and also it's a, uh, um, yeah, that way of saying that it's like Charlie, Char Charles or chocolate. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 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 And then the E, it's like, I don't know. It's not Kima. <laughs> Get it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting because I can totally see that. To It actually does work, I think, when you see the word to know that it's it's a strong CH. Because mm -hmm. like both of them are capitalized. It's, yeah. But not all of the people okay. get it. Totally. You really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, but but as we have also learned lately, there's no no harm in asking. Right, hey, exactly. How do you Just want ask. your name to pronounce to be pronounced? Mm -hmm. What your not your pronouns are? Exactly. And also, I I like the part of language that is living entity, and mm -hmm. that it also changes. Because I mean, the language is always changing, and evolving, or. I don't know if it's always forward evolution, I mean, for onward evolution, but it changes and, and it also comes back like, an, like a cycle. So it, I don't know. It's just, a, just a, another part of human beings and human culture. <laughs> the yeah, totally, totally. Well, where can people find you and follow you out there on the internet and stay connected i i have the monopoly on chama scandal social media yeah on all of it yeah so whatever you <laughs> want to look for my stuff it's chema c-h-e-m-a-s-k-a-n-d-a-l or chemascandal.org.com also i have a postal mailbox because i'm like old-timey and i <laughs> like getting letters or zines and stickers. Oh, cool! Or exchange them. So yeah, I can send you the the address if you send me an email. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's wonderful. And yeah, thank you so much again for letting me borrow an hour of your time as you're moving houses. I know that moving is up there with the stressful experiences humans can have, but it's been it's been great to connect and learn more about your story and the work that you do. And I'm excited to share more with the Hello Print Friend audience. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you again. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice, or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Annalise Gratovich. Annalise is going to be coming on the podcast for the second time. So if you want to prep for this chat, go back and listen to episode 27, way back when the podcast was called Pine Copper Lime. In next week's episode, we're going to catch up with Annalise. She speaks candidly about her recent and serious health challenges, what this means when you're a working artist, 
and her experience going through all of this in the depths of the pandemic. We also talk about making art as the daughter of Ukrainian immigrants in a time of war, and how she finds strength and passion for her work during all of these turbulent times. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.